I think that there are two uh, respects in which I think Thomism is now discussed, um, concerning which I do have some reservations. Uh, one is a tendency, I think, uh, though this is a, an expression of a broader tendency in philosophy, to seek a general systematic single theory that's somehow going to explain everything. And so the idea, well, you know, if it can be Kantianism or it could be Humanism or it could be Thomism. And um, I just don't think philosophy is like that, I'm afraid. I mean, I think there's a great deal in Thomas, but uh, I don't think that uh, it's just a matter of, as it were, completing the work that he began and then we will have a complete answer uh, to everything. I think there are things that we now know as a result of the philosophy that's intervened into, in the uh, centuries since, that just tells us that um, we're going to have to draw resources from elsewhere and find ways of combining them with things in Thomism, but that won't necessarily constitute the completion of a single system. But that's not uh, my theme right now. That was my theme last night. Um, uh, my theme just now really is, is to raise the question, uh, is, was Aquinas a realist? And uh, the general theme of this is uh, Aquinas and philosophical realism, so I'm going to discuss the respects in which he was, or perhaps was not, a realist. So, um, throughout the 20th century, and continuing today, it's been common for admirers of Thomas Aquinas to allude with uh, approbation, and often in celebration, to what they refer to as his philosophical realism. The context for this is the belief that modern philosophy, beginning with Descartes and Locke, continuing with Hume and Kant, then with Hegel and Mill, and extending into recent times, is in one way or another generally anti-realist, either sceptical, uh, denying that we know anything other than our own mental states, or constructivist, asserting that there is no such thing as a wholly mind-independent reality, that the world is in some sense, and in part or in whole, an artifact of human thought and experience. Now I'm going to, this, this talk comes in four sections, these are the four sections, and I'll let you know when we've got through them, uh, as we go through them rather. Uh, I'm beginning, uh, well, I'm just begun Aquinas the realist. At some point I'm going to, be going to make reference to that diagram over there, so we'll have to do a, bit, a little bit of ducking of heads, but you're alright for the time being. So we've just got underway with one Aquinas the realist. Well, although Aquinas wrote seven and a half centuries ago, his elevation as a champion of realism, and indeed as a philosopher of common sense, is relatively recent, surprisingly recent in fact. In a chapter of his book on Aquinas published in 1933, entitled The Approach to Thomism, G.K. Chesterton gives approbatory voice to the idea of Thomas as a defender of common sense realism. Chesterton writes as follows. The fact that Thomism is the philosophy of common sense is itself a matter of common sense. Yet it wants a word of explanation because we have for so very long taken such matters in a very uncommon sense. Since the modern world began in the 16th century, nobody's system of philosophy has really corresponded to everybody's sense of reality, to what, if left to themselves, common men would call common sense. Each started with a paradox, a peculiar point of view, demanding the sacrifice of what they would call a sane point of view. This is the one thing in common to Hobbes and Hegel, to Kant and Bergson, to Berkeley and William James. My only object in this book is to show that the Thomist philosophy is nearer than most philosophies 
to the mind of the man in the street. So wrote Chesterton in 1933. Well, when Chesterton says that it's nearer than most philosophies to what the plain person believes, he means, I think, not that Thomas holds some proportionately small number of views in tension with common sense, but rather that his philosophical defense of realism involves distinctions and theoretical aspects that are not part of and have no parallel in everyday thought. And that interpretation is favored, I think, by the following passage, which comes a few pages later. Chesterton writes, Needless to say, I am not so silly as to suggest that all the writings of St. Thomas are simple and straightforward, in the sense of being easy to understand. There are passages I don't in the least understand myself. There are passages that puzzle much more learned and logical philosophers than I am. There are passages about which the greatest Thomists still differ and dispute. The only point I am stressing here is that Aquinas is almost always on the side of simplicity and supports the ordinary man's acceptance of ordinary truisms. For instance, one of the most obscure passages, Chesterton continues, in my very inadequate judgment, he writes, is that, is that in which he, Thomas, explains how the mind is certain of an external object and not merely of an impression of that object, and yet apparently reaches it through a concept, though not merely through an impression. But the only point here is that he does explain that the mind is certain of an external object. It's enough for this purpose that his conclusion is what is called the conclusion of common sense, that it is his purpose to justify common sense, even though he justifies it in a passage which happens to be one of rather uncommon subtlety. There you enjoy the wonderful prose of Chesterton. Well, lest it seems odd to be quoting from Chesterton on these matters, since he was not trained, let alone an academic philosopher or scholar. In fact, some of you may know that Chesterton's only period of uh, tertiary education was one year at art school. Um, but anyway, it lets it seem odd to be quoting from Chesterton. It may be said that the book is remarkably well attuned to the general character of Aquinas's mind. This fact was recognized by Etienne Gilson. Gilson was mentioned in the previous uh, talk was recognized by Gilson, who was indeed one of the greatest 20th century scholars and interpreters of Aquinas. And Gilson reviewed the book, Chesterton's book, when it first appeared, and then wrote of it again following Chesterton's death three years later. Here's what Gilson said in that later um, uh, estimation. He wrote, I consider it as being, without possible comparison, the best book ever written on St. Thomas. The few readers who spent 20 or 30 years in studying St. Thomas Aquinas and who perhaps have themselves published two or three volumes on the subject cannot fail to perceive that the so-called wit of Chesterton has put their scholarship to shame. He has guessed all that they had tried to demonstrate and he has said all that which they were more or less clumsily attempting to express in academic formulas. Now, um, so, so says Jusson, Chesterton, I think, unquestionably had a natural gift for philosophical insight and argument, something which, conjoined to his attachment to the Catholic faith, led others who were or would become academic philosophers to follow him into the Catholic Church. Among the most philosophically sophisticated of these, I would say, were Elizabeth Anscombe 
and oral colni, the second perhaps a less familiar name to you, but I think one of the most important moral philosophers of the 20th century, as I think the 20th first century will in due course establish. That said, Gilson surely exaggerates the intellectual merit of the book, but perhaps he was returning an implied compliment since the reading of Aquinas as a realist and the assertion that this puts him in opposition to the majority of modern philosophers were features of Gilson's own writings with which Chesterton might have been acquainted. Maisie Ward, Chesterton's publisher and biographer, reports how when she and her husband were told that Chesterton was writing a book on St. Thomas, he, her husband Wilfred, I quote, felt a faint quiver of apprehension was Chesterton for once undertaking a task beyond his knowledge? She continues, Such masses of research had recently been done on St Thomas by experts of such high standing, and he could not possibly have read it all. His secretary, Dorothy Collins, reported that he began by rapidly dictating to her about half the book. So far, he'd consulted no authorities, but at this stage he said to her, I want you to go to London and get me some books. What, what books? <laughs> asked Dorothy. I don't know, said G.K. She wrote, therefore, to Father O'Connor. Now, some of you will know that Father O'Connor was the priest who inspired the figure of Father Brown, Chesterton's most famous creation. At any rate, um, Dorothy Collins, the secretary, wrote to Father O'Connor, and she got from him a list of classic and more recent books on St. Thomas. According to uh, uh, Dorothy Collins, G.K. flipped them rapidly through, which she said was the only way that she ever saw him read a book, and then dictated to her the rest of his own book without referring to them again. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's a question. Might these books have included works by Gilson? For the most part, volumes available in English at that point were collections of essays celebrating different aspects of Aquinas' character and achievements though more substantial were a couple of works, Martin de Wolf's Scholasticism, Old and New, and Olgiati's uh, The Key to the Study of St. Thomas. More recently, though, in 1929, an authorised English translation of the revised third edition of Gilson's Thomism had been published under the title The Philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas. In this book, Gilson addresses the matter of Aquinas's account of sense knowledge, of intellection, and of truth. But these occur only as part of a broader treatment of nature. Gilson had, however, in the same year, begun a series of articles on the subject of Thomistic realism, taking issue with some contemporary neo-Thomist thinkers generally described as critical realists, described as such by Gilson. These, letter, these essays were later brought together and published in two books, um, The Methodology of Realism and Realism, um, Thomistic Realism and the Critique of Knowledge, published in 1936 and 39, respectively. Now, I want, I want to draw attention to the second of these works, Thomistic Realism and the Critique of Knowledge, published, remember, five years, no, six years after uh, Chesterton's book. That title, Thomistic Realism and the Critique of Knowledge, is bold, indeed deliberately challenging. But what's more striking is that the first chapter 
is titled Realism and Common Sense. And it begins in a markedly Chestertonian ironic style. Gilson writes, After passing 20 centuries as the very model of those self-evident facts that only a madman would ever dream of doubting, the existence of the external world finally received its metaphysical demonstration from Descartes. Now, immediately, Gilson explains the influence of the Cartesian critical turn, beginning not with things but with thoughts, Descartes' cogitationes, sensations and ideas, and he then refers approvingly to the founder of the Scottish School of Common Sense Philosophy. Gilson writes, When Thomas Reed recounted this remarkable story, he was one of the first to discern its meaning, the story of the history of ideas, ideas as being the intermediary representations, the impressions, and so on. And it was his, uh, Reed's, intent to escape the magic circle in which philosophers since Descartes had been trapped, mesmerized by the cogitative and idealism, without ever managing to get out. It was, in large measure, his, Reed's, resolute re rejection of the Cartesian approach that led Reed to elaborate his doctrine of common sense. Well, I'll return to uh, Reed briefly in a moment, but so as not to omit another important source of the celebration of Aquinas as an epistemological realist, let me mention that other major work by a French Thomist also published in the early 1930s, namely Jacques Maritain's The Degrees of Knowledge. This is a more systematic and detailed account of the theory of cognition to be found in Aquinas and in his scholastic commentators, principally for Maritain, John of St. Thomas. But what I want to emphasize now, however, and I've never seen this proposed or considered, is that the style and to some extent the framing of Gilson's presentation of Thomistic realism may have owed something to his reading of Chesterton's book. If this is right, then it may be that Gilson's highly influential rejection of what he took to be quasi-Cartesian and quasi-Kantian formulations of Thomistic cognitive theory is indebted if only in its confident style and popular appeal to none other than the author of the Father Brown detective stories, a man, as I say, whose only higher education consisted of one year's study at the Slade School of Fine Art. Was Aquinas then a realist? We're on to number two. Well, so much by way of speculation as to the origins of the relatively recent celebration of Aquinas as a realist philosopher of common sense. And this characterization, the point I'm making here, it only really begins in the 1930s. What I want to do now is turn to the question of whether this representation of him is accurate. Was Aquinas really that kind of realist? Or was he indeed a realist at all? Now, in discussing those matters, I'll move briefly between three perspectives, not always announcing these shifts or giving details of how things appear from each of them. First is that of Aquinas' own writings. Second, that of perceptions of his thought, such as those of Chesterton, Gilson, and others. And third, that of discussions within contemporary philosophy. To answer the two questions, was he a realist, and if so, what kind of realist, um, we first need to get clearer about what realism amounts to. In general, talk of isms is as misleading in relation to philosophy as it is with regard to art or any other field of refined and discriminating 
practical or speculative production. Indeed, in general, in the case of philosophy, it's worse. For whereas artists might conveniently, if rather gerrymanderingly, be grouped by reference to styles or methods or themes, the use of isms in philosophy is usually intended to identify lines of argument advanced in association with certain ideas. And one cannot really understand either of these without placing them within a dialectical context so as to see what they're set against. An impressionist need not place his efforts in opposition to a non-impressionist, let alone an anti-impressionist, whatever that might be. But a realist can only properly be understood by contrast with an imposing anti-realism. And more real, moreover, realism and anti-realism only make sense, if they do make sense, in relation to some area or subject matter. Well, as I indicated, the celebration of Aquinas to be found in the writings of Chesterton, Gilson and Maritain is primarily in relation to his epistemological position, if we may call it that. And I enter that caveat, mindful of the fact that the term epistemology was only coined in the 19th century by one of my St Andrew's predecessors, James Frederick Ferrier. And second, that the activity it was introduced to describe is one whose point arose from the sceptical doubts introduced by Descartes, doubts of which Aquinas appears almost entirely innocent. Realism of this sort, which is advanced by Thomas Reed on the basis of an analysis of the Cartesian and Lockean theory of ideas as mental intermediaries, is opposed to anti-realist representationalism. Advocates of the latter positions claim that the immediate and perhaps the only objects of cognition, so sorry, that should not. The, uh, yeah. So read, as I say, uh, the realism, the idea of direct realism, that one sees the object itself, uh, is advanced by Thomas Reed on the basis of an analysis of the, of the Cartesian and Lockean theory of ideas, and Reed's view is opposed to the kind of representationalism that would have these images intervening between the subject and um, the external object. So advocates of the latter positions, these representationalist positions, claim that the immediate and perhaps the only objects of cognition are subject of states, impressions, sense data, ideas, or whatever. And against this, realists hold that whether or not there is that kind of subjective state cognition, there is also direct knowledge of things themselves, as in this case. Reed, who Gilson and many others since have praised for his exposure of representationalist assumptions and fallacies, writes of how, I quote, all philosophers from Plato to Mr. Hume agree in this, that we do not perceive external objects immediately and that the immediate object of perception must be some image present to the mind. That's the picture there. And Reed then opposes to this a theory of ideas as mental acts, in which thoughts and perceptions are conceptually informed operations, as it were, that they're, but they're things that engage directly. He writes as follows. This is Thomas Reed, the other Thomas. Conceiving, he says, as well as planning and deciding, are what the schoolmen, the scholastics, called imminent acts of the mind, which produce nothing beyond themselves. Let this, therefore, be always remembered, that as what is commonly called the image of a thing in the mind is no more 
than the act or operation of the mind in conceiving it. So he's really wanting to say that there's an ambiguity in the idea of conceiving an idea. One would be the interpretation of that according to Descartes and Locke, in which what you're actually conceiving is a, is a mental representation. That's the thing that you are cognitively engaged with, and then that may represent some external thing. But he wants to say there's another sense of conceiving an idea, which is just thinking of the thing, having an idea of the thing. And the idea directly engages with the thing, and that's what Thomas Reed has to say. Now, it is unfortunate, I think, and ironic, in view of his mention of the scholastics in that quotation, that Reed does not exempt Aquinas from the charge of representationalism. Remember he said, you know, that, that uh, everybody, all philosophers from Plato to Mr. Hume, I think Aquinas falls somewhere in between that. Um, it's unfortunate and ironic, as I say, in view of his mention of the scholastics, that Reed doesn't exempt Aquinas from the charge of representationalism, since there can be little doubt that if it is thought to be useful to place Aquinas in relation to the ideas debate, then what he, seem, what he says seems to place him on the realist side. So let me quote here. The, there's a ter terminology which is sort of a bit of technical scholastic, but anyway, the intelligible species is to the intellect what the sensible species is to the sense. I'll explain this in a second. But the sensible form is not what is perceived, but rather that by which sense perceives. Therefore, the intelligible species is not what is actually thought of, uh, any more than the sensible species is what is actually seen, but is that by which the intellect thinks. So what Thomas is saying here is that the modification of the sense organ that's induced by the object in the external environment, that state of affairs that's set up in the sensory apparatus is not the object of perception, it's that by which one sees. So it is what orients the sense faculty towards the object. It's not, it's the uh, it's the id quo, not the id quad of cognition. It's that by which the thing is seen is not what's seen. So, as I say, that needs a few words of explanation. But in broad terms, it is indeed a statement of epistemological realism, what we've just seen in Thomas. Even so, that characterization is somewhat anachronistic, since the theories advanced by Descartes and Locke were not known to Aquinas, and he would have been less concerned to justify claims to sense and intellectual knowledge than, taking them for granted, to explain how they're possible. Well, what then of other kinds of realism and anti-realism? I mean, that was epistemological uh, realism with regard to um, perception in this case, but thought would follow upon that. But let's think about some other kinds of realism and anti-realism. And I've agreed that if it's useful to speak of Thomas as a realist here in the way that Chesterton and Jusson and Maritain wanted to, then he is indeed an anti-representationalist. But what of other kinds of realism and anti-realism? One that's been prominent in late 20th century analytical philosophy, which Aquinas neither discusses, I mean, any counterpart of it, nor anticipates, nor I think could really have made sense of, is semantic anti-realism. Now, I'm not going to say much about this, but I'll just as well quickly go through one aspect of it. This is related to, though it usually makes a point of distinguishing itself from, verificationism, the view that the meaning of a sentence is given by and cannot transcend the possibility of its verification. On this account, to say 
the Washington Square Arch was built in 1892, is only meaningful and therefore only apt to be evaluated as true or false if it's possible to relate its content to some means of establishing conclusively whether it is, in fact, true or false. Now, establishing the truth or falsity of a sentence will involve either proving it to be such on the basis of deducing this by logically valid inference from other sentences known to be true, or else confirming it by experience or perhaps in a third way on the basis of testimony. Though that last testimony for the verificationist will not, I think, be an independent method of determination. And in the absence of any of these ways of showing a sentence to be true, on this view it lacks meaning. Post-verificationist semantic anti-realism has a more relaxed attitude to proof and evidence, for one thing extending these to in-principle confirmation. Still, the claim of the semantic anti-realist is that one cannot give meaning to sentences the conditions of whose truth could not in principle be known. I said that Aquinas doesn't consider this sort of argument, but he has, I think, the resources to respond to it, or perhaps to engage with it, by pointing out that what is necessary for giving meaning is not being able to determine the truth of a sentence, but to understand its content through a grasp and use of the concepts that feature in it. And this is done through a variety of cognitive methods, abstractive induction, analogy, imagination, the combination of relative expressions, and so on. For Aquinas, there are connections between meaning and truth, but they're not of any single or simple variety. And we acquire and manifest our understanding in a large number of highly diverse ways, often by relating one claim to others, relating these to action, and so on. So really, with regard to semantic anti-realism, I just don't think that it's useful to ask the question, is Thomas a semantic realist or an anti-realist? It really is deeply anachronistic to ask that question. But if one were to try to sort of you know, um, look into the, 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 the text and, and try to find things there that might be relevant to that, I think we can find, that we'll find things that are relevant. But it just isn't a way of formulating um, an issue that I think he would have found uh, intelligible. But who knows? So uh, that was a part of the question, was Aquinas a realist? But I'm continuing it now by moving into three, the one and the many. It's a sort of lapidary phrase in philosophy, the one and the many. Historically, prior to its use in relation to knowledge and to meaning, the term realism was introduced in the history of philosophy and in accounts of the history of philosophy to describe positions on the question whether there is generality out with the mind. And really the principal deployer of this term realism is Sir William Hamilton, uh, writing in the 19th century. Again, the term realism is really quite a modern term. Um, so the, this, this use of the term realism, uh, as I say, is, is introduced to um, characterize a position or a set of positions on the question of whether there is generality out with the mind. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Put another way, are there, in addition to individual things, also general natures? General natures and characteristics. Are there, as well as this black cat or this green chair, say, blackness and catness, or chairness and, in this case, greenness? So in addition to individual things, are there also general natures and characteristics? 
Traditionally, accounts of the debates about these sorts of questions, as they were engaged in by medieval philosophers, and they were philosophers including Aquinas, have identified two broad positions, realism and nominalism, and then further divided the realist and anti-realist positions into two further pairs. In this sort of scheme, we have radical and moderate realism. On the one hand, the view that general natures exist prior to and independent of particular instances, sort of platonic view, and on the other, that while general natures exist, they only do so in and through their instances. So there is generality, but the generality is only to be found in things. And then on the other side, we have two opposing positions, again, describable as radical and moderate. The radical position holding that the only generality there is, the only generality there is, is that associated with the attaching of a common name to a group of individuals, hence nominalism. The moderate uh, position maintains that while there is no generality in nature, nor is the meaning of general terms such as black or cat reducible to or identifiable with the use of common terms. Rather, on this view, general natures or universals do indeed exist, not in things but in the mind, where they either pre-exist, um, pre-exist particular subsumable under such universal concepts, or post-exist them as intellectually abstracted by thinkers. Well, where then does Aquinas stand in relation to this realist-non-realist debate? He writes as follows. If it is asked whether this nature, man, humanity, whether it is asked, sorry, if it is asked whether this nature, considered in this way, can be said to be one or many, we should concede neither alternative. For both are beyond the concept of humanity, and either may befall the conception of man. If plurality were in the concept of this nature, it could never be one. But nevertheless, it is one, as it exists in Socrates. Similarly, if unity were in the notion of this nature, then it would be one and the same in Socrates and in Plato, and it could not be made many in the many individuals. Now, this is a very potent uh, reflection, I think. But in brief, his answer is this. Natures are plural in things, but single as formed and expressed in abstract concepts. In the world, there are only individual cats, each with its own individual nature. But considering these many, we may form a conception in which these natures are considered apart from their material individuating conditions, and this conception is of a general nature. Cats and their natures are many. Catness, as an abstracted form, is one. Moreover, in then deploying this concept to refer to individuals, we don't err in subsuming them within a common class. And in doing so, we're not merely inventing and attaching a name to an arbitrary collection of particulars. For the concept has to answer to the natural conformity of one cat nature to another cat nature. Now, I said that the use of the term realism in relation to these questions is, in fact, a contrastive one. 
and understood in this way, we might say that Aquinas is less of a realist about common natures than either Plato in his way or Aristotle in his, but more of a realist than, say, Occam. Yet this way of speaking is also, I think, misleading, since it would be better to say that they differ in where they locate the reality of general natures. Ways of being and being known. This brings me, finally, to two related but somewhat different debates to which realism and anti-realism have been attached. Those terms, realism and anti-realism, have been attached. And in a minute, I'll direct your eye through this diagram, but we'll come to that in a second. So, uh, well, I can actually, let me just <laughs> to direct your eye to it just now. Uh, realisms and non-realisms, we've got on the one hand metaphysical, on the metaphysical side concerning what exists, and on the other side concerning uh, knowledge and what is known, though actually I'm going to, f although I'm distinguishing those at the top, I'm going to forge a little link uh, towards the bottom. And we've got some questions. Do Ks, where K represents a kind, do Ks exist? And then we've got no, yes, and so on. So we'll, we'll make our way through that in a minute. So as I say, this brings me finally to two related but somewhat different debates to which the terms realism and anti-realism have been attached. So far as concerns metaphysics or ontology, as these are classically understood, there are two questions one might ask about members of some kind K. So K just stands for some kind. Or about the kind itself. Question number one is, do Ks exist? Or does K, where K is the nature, exist? And two, how do Ks exist? That's lower down on the left-hand side. How do Ks uh, or K exist? So let me speak now. So the, the, sorry, just say that again. We've got do Ks exist, and then the next question is going to be how do Ks exist? And these are two questions under the metaphysical column. So let me speak now of avowers and deniers. We've got avowers and we've got deniers. And say that a denier holds that Ks or K do not exist at all whereas an avower maintains that they do. But this isn't the end of the matter, for there might be a further difference insofar as some avowers may hold that Ks or K exist extramentally, whereas other avowers may hold that while they certainly exist, their existence is mind or subject dependent. So there's a second question, do they exist? If you say no, you're a denier, so you're an eliminativist about Ks. But if you said, yes, you're an avower, Ks exist, that isn't quite the end of the, of the interrogation, because now we have to say, but how do they exist? Do they exist mind-dependently or mind-independently? So, for example, some philosophers deny that sense data, let's say a phenomenal blue patch, exist, while others say they do exist, but then a dispute breaks out among the avowers about sense data, as to whether they exist outside of or only within experience. In terms of this distinction, we might say that Aquinas is an avower as regards general natures, but that he holds them to be mind-dependent. Is he then a realist or a non or an anti-realist? Well, how to answer that question depends less on what Aquinas actually says than where one wishes to place him in relation to other positions. And here the language of isms again shows its frailty and its distorting tendency. 
So it makes, since it makes it sound as if a position is an absolute one, whereas it may be better seen as comparative or contrastive, certainly best seen in relation to a particular question rather than expressive of a general disposition. So finally, and I really do mean finally, I come to the second of the related debates and to another two questions. So now we've gone over to the right-hand side, epistemological. Um, two questions. One, what is known? What are the objects of knowledge? And two, how are they known? And I'll explain what I mean by that second question in a moment. So I said earlier that, like Thomas Reed, Aquinas holds that cognitive acts engage objects via the mediation of sensory and ideational structures. I'll call these percepts and concepts. The shared belief of the two Thomases, Aquinas and Reed, is that save under conditions of reflective attention to the activity of sensory or intellectual cognition, these structures are not themselves the objects of cognition, but are the things that shape and direct the mind towards the world. So far then, so anti-representationalist or anti-anti-realist. But what about the second question? How are things known? So I'm saying here, according to Thomas, we do indeed know things out with the mind. But how are those things known? More precisely, are they known as they are in themselves or as we represent them? Now, Aquinas and his traditional followers are apt to distinguish between a nature as it is according to the thing itself and according to the manner in which it is in the knower. The usually intended meaning of this is to distinguish between extramental and mental existence, as in the distinction between the way that catness of the cat is in the cat and the way in which it is, or its universalized form, is in a thinker thinking of cats. But I want now to draw attention to a further possibility of interpreting this question about how is something known. Recall that I said that for the nominalist, at least on one account of that position, there are only individuals and names by which a plurality of these individuals are co-identified. Aquinas's position in relation to this is that the nominalist misses out another part of mind-independent reality, namely the natures and characteristics of individual things. For Aquinas, there's Felix, an individual cat, and Felicity, another individual cat. Then there are two individual natures, the catness of Felix and the catness of Felicity. And further, there are various individual characteristics, the shape and the color and the weight of Felix and those of Felicity and so on. For Aquinas then, general natures and characteristics exist all right, but only in a mind-dependent way. And what exist mind-independently are all individuals, substances and property instances. Now, I think traditional Thomas will allow this, but not think that it has any further implications for debates about realism than are part and parcel of the rejection of Platonist and Aristotelian doctrines of independent universals and so on. But I'm not so sure that this is so. Aquinas's realist champions will point to the fact that he, that he says that what exists in the mind in consequence of the operation of active intellectual power is the general essence. 
But he also tells us that we know very little about the intrinsic nature of things. So what might constitute then the content of the concept of a general kind? At one place, Thomas writes as follows, because substantial forms, which in themselves are unknown to us, are known by their accidents, nothing prevents us from sometimes substituting accidents for substantial differences. Recently, linguistic psychologists and philosophers of language have become interested in general <laughs> grammatical forms of a particular sort with which Aquinas, as an Aristotelian, was very familiar. Generalizations regarding a kind K having a feature F come in two broad forms, quantified and unquantified generalizations. Quantified generalizations speak of all or most or few or none or of some numerical fraction or particular percentage of K's being or having F. Unquantified generalizations do not, though they may be expressed in singular or plural forms, in the first case with the definite article, the K is F, in the second with the indefinite article, a K is F, or simply K's are F. The singular forms don't refer to individuals per se, but to the kind, as when it's said that the snake is a vertebrate, or a snake has scales. And this sort of generic generalization is more familiarly expressed in the plural form as in snakes are vertebrates or snakes have scales. Now the empirical evidence which is very interesting and compelling is that children begin to show signs of generalization pre-linguistically pre uh, through their behavior and action and so on, but develop linguistic generics around the age of three or four. These forms, these unquantified forms of generalization, precede quantified generalizations and are more securely affirmed even in the face of counter-instances. That latter fact, that's to say that people will hold on to these generic characterizations even in the face of counter-instances, this latter fact is neither surprising nor problematic, since being unquantified, they're not hostage to exceptions. I mean, if you were saying most or all such and such, and then you, particularly if you're saying all, of course, or none, and then you come up with a counter-instance, you're in trouble. But if these are not quantified. So what is it that these generics capture? Well, one idea would be observed prevalence among instances of the kind. But that's implausible, in part for want of exposure to sufficient examples to conjecture prevalence. We're talking about three-year-olds at this point. More plausible is the thought that they're expressions of identified characteristics in the sense of features that are attributed to the natures of the things in question. If these were conjectured, conjectured essences, they would not admit of exceptions. But on the other hand, if they're characteristics, they're not entirely contingent either. What kind of thing, then, can generics be representing? Well, if the philosopher under discussion now was Wittgenstein, I'd be speaking of criteria, or standards for the application of terms. But since it's Aquinas, we should look elsewhere and see if we can find anything. And we can. What we can find is the idea of appropriate, a non-accidental but non-essential characteristic of a kind of thing, 
Thomas writes as follows, Substantial differences being unknown to us, or at least unnamed by us, it's sometimes necessary to use accidental differences in the place of substantial. As, for example, we may say that fire is a simple, hot and dry, sorry, hot and dry body. For proper accidents are the effects of substantial forms and make them known. Accidentia enum propria sunt effectus formarum substantialum et manifestant eas. Proper accidents. Propria. Aquinian concepts, save in the case where what is up for conceptual characterization is something whose real and nominal essence coincides, as in the example of geometrical figure, for instance, are proprium identifying generics, which tolerate exceptions because propria, unlike essences, hold only for the most part, ut in pluribus. We saw earlier, however, that natures as they exist in rebus are singular. So if we are now to speak of general propria as expressed in unquantified generalizations, we also need to recognize that these do not exist save as mind-dependent. Lastly, we may notice something else which appears in the empirical study of generic formation, which is that as well, which is that as well, I don't know, as perhaps, those, quanti- uh, those unquantified generalites, oh yes, I could, but it is an as. Lastly, we may notice something else which appears in the empirical study of generic formation, comma, which is that as well as those unquantified generalizations that attribute intrinsic characteristics, there are others that identify what look to be interest-reflecting features, such as flames are hot, or the comparative tigers are more vicious than lions, or, said of colors, greens are more restful than reds. Here the point is that not only are general essences and propria not mind-independent in the metaphysical sense, but the contents of many generics, if not all human concepts, stand apart to some degree from the individual nature, natures out of which, or on the basis of which, human concepts are formed. By stand apart, here I don't mean only to refer to human fallibility, but to the fact that some at least of the concepts we form reflect our interests. And since the conceptual is always mind-dependent, we can say that not only the fact, but the structure and content of the general nature of things is a product of the human mind. This sounds a little like the kind of thing Gilson was reacting against. But if I'm right, it's a position that a Thomist, to the extent that they are following the lead taken by Thomas himself, should accept. If by the world one means the totality of particular things and particular characteristics, then the world may not be mind-dependent, save where, of course, the individual things are themselves products of human action. But if one means by the world the totality of existing things, both particular and general, then in that sense, both the generality and the inventory are mind-dependent. So if mind-dependence is the mark of one kind of anti-realism, then Aquinas is a kind of anti-realist. If that seems unsatisfactory or misleading, then rather than challenge the substantive view so as to save him from that classification, one might do better to recall the advice 
to avoid using the terminology of realism and anti-realism and attend instead to the particularities of Aquinas, of what Aquinas actually had to say. Thank you. Thank you.